0: But what I want to speak to you um, about this morning as we look at these few verses, and there's quite a lot in these verses, quite densely packed. But what I want us to start thinking about this morning is the idea of oneness and alienation. Oneness and alienation. And uh, this seems a bit round the houses. But I want us just to think in a moment, for a few moments in our mind, to go back to the Garden of Eden and go back to the time when God creates man and woman. And um, you remember, as God is creating, He says to them that "Let us make man in our image. Let's make man, male and female in our image." And sometimes I think we struggle with that idea. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? And theologians through the centuries have talked about that a lot. What does it actually mean to be made in God's image? What, you know, what do we really mean when we're saying that? But I think one of the key aspects of what it means to be made in God's image is that God above all is one. God is one. God is intimately connected. All of the members of the Trinity, they dwell together in this perfect union, enjoying each other in this family of love. There's this oneness. And so because we're made in God's image, there is that within us, deep within us, in in the core of our being, that yearns for that same oneness. It yearns for that connectedness to be one. And we yearn for that oneness or that connectedness in a couple of ways. And the first way we yearn for that oneness and that connectedness is that we yearn for that oneness with one another. We yearn for a deep sense of oneness and connectedness with other human beings deep down and actually in some ways that's something that as we go throughout our lives we can become quite obsessed by. Our life is, is governed by this desire to want to fit in, to want to fit into a group. And as I was reflecting on this, <clears throat> one of the things that is, is in, endemic to our, our reality as human beings is, is that we are tribal creatures, and tribalism is rampant. As you look across the world, across the nations, we see it in its, in its worst manifestations. you remember in 1994, there was a terrible genocide in Rwanda, and the country literally tore itself apart between the Tutsis and the Hutus, and they, they kind of literally destroyed each other, and there was a great genocide. Or if you're into football... Um, you know, you go down to Norwich Football, and you, the Canaries are playing, and Ipswich are playing. I'm from Ipswich originally, um, <laughs> but uh, I shouldn't say that, should I? <laughs> but but you but you see this you see this tribalism in action. You see this tribalism in action, and really, what this tribalism is is it's an attempt to create oneness. So within us. There is that which is God-given, this God-given desire for oneness, but as human beings, we seek oneness by attempting to form tribes, to create an artificial oneness in our sinfulness. That oneness becomes corrupted and becomes something which is highly destructive. Um, so, so we then sort of start to, the downside of that is that we then start to exclude people who we see as other and who are different because they won't fit into our version of oneness. And so this oneness becomes distorted. So that's what we go through our lives doing and we see it even within churches, don't we? We see it probably within church culture where we get different groups who define themselves by different labels and they're seeking to, again, create a oneness in their own tribe. But the thing is that this, this oneness um, is not only horizontal. We don't only have a horizontal desire for oneness with others, but we have a vertical desire as human beings for oneness with our Creator. And going back to the Garden of Eden, you remember that Adam and Eve were walking in the Garden in the cool of the day, and God was there with them. And so we yearn to go back to that Edenic state where we were at one with others, And at one with our Creator. And um, you know, people are seeking that connection with the divine all the time. Now, if you look, if you go to the bookstores, if you go to Waterstones, even now you'll see that some of the most popular books are books like Connecting with Your Guardian Angel. Um, If you look even here in this place, You know, and in other places, you have mind, body, soul, spirits, and mind, body, soul, spirit um, events. And what they're doing is they're trying to touch the transcendent, they're trying to connect with the transcendent. Because the Bible says in Ecclesiastes, it says that God has placed eternity in our hearts, and so there is a desire to connect with the divine. Now, unfortunately, people are going the wrong way about it. But that's something which is integral to the human experience. And as far back as you go into history, if you look at the earlier civilizations, and you look at the cave paintings um, often that you'll see um, you know, on the walls, they're often, it's often religious imagery that is there. So right from the beginning of humankind, there's been this search or this desire to connect with something higher. But also if you travel the world and you travel the globe and you look at the landscape from wherever you are, you'll find that the landscape is dotted with religious edifices, whether they are temples, whether they're churches, whether they're mosques. This need to be connected um, is is just fundamental to who we are. There's a Christian think tank called Theos, and they do a lot of... um, Uh, They do a lot of research into the state of where religion is in the country. And so they're a British-based think-tank, and they did a survey back in 2013. So it's a little bit outdated now, but, you know, bear with me. And they found that well over half of the people questioned in that survey believed in some form of spiritual being or essence. So it's about 60% of people said that they believe in some form of spiritual being or essence. But what was interesting, what's quite fascinating, is that they found that only 13%, 13% of those who said that they were non-religious agreed with this statement, humans are purely material beings with no spiritual element. Do you see what I mean? So even the people who said they were in the non-religious category, it was only 13%, tiny, it's very small proportion, who were willing to just say human beings are purely material, with no spiritual element. Because, really, as popular as people like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and others are becoming, Just by virtue of the fact that we're human and there are things that there are love and there is beauty and even consciousness. If you think about the consciousness, the fact that we are self aware beings, that we are fully conscious, that cannot be accounted for by scientific reductionism. And so that hardline atheism of people like Dawkins, it doesn't have much popular appeal. So really I just want, that sounds a bit random, but, but I really wanted to frame what we're going to look at in this passage in that context, because alienation, uh, disconnection from others, um, ver, uh, horizontal alienation and vertical alienation, but that really is what Paul is addressing here. So I just want to look at that and just look at how can, the big question is, how can this alienation, how can this person-to-person and God-to-person alienation be broken down? And that really is what Paul is looking at here. So just follow with me. If we look at verse 11, our first verse, it says here, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by what is called circumcision made in the hands. So we've got here these these different groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, and they're different groups uh, religiously, and ethnically, and the Jews knew that they were privileged. The Jews knew that God had blessed them. They knew that they were a blessed people. And If we look back, it should be on the screen above you, we'll see why God chose the Jewish people, what he chose them for. He said that in your seed, he said to the people of Israel, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So God blessed the Jewish nation originally in order to be a blessing to the other nations. Because God said that you're going to be a light to the Gentiles. So the Jewish nation were never blessed just to say, oh, look at us, we're blessed now. You know, whoopee-doo. But they were blessed to be a light, to be a light to the nations. But they'd forgotten this. And because they'd forgotten this, they started to pour contempt on the Gentile people, and they say, well, you are, you're, you're the uncircumcision. It's a term of derision, really, a term of derision and abuse. What's very interesting is um, if we... Um, there's a Bible scholar, a guy called William Barclay, and I'm just going to read you about what he said about, about the relationship between Jews and Gentiles at the time. It's very interesting. He says, the Jew had an immense contempt for the Gentile. The Gentiles said that the Jews were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. God, they said, loves only Israel of all the nations he has made. And it wasn't even lawful to render help to a Gentile mother in her hour of sorest need. So if a Gentile woman was giving birth and the birth was running into problems and that baby might die it was considered unlawful to help that woman and try and allow the birth to be successful because it was just bringing another one of these horrible subhuman Gentiles into the world. It says, Until Christ came, the Gentiles were an object of contempt to the Jews. The barrier between them was absolute. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl, the funeral of that Jewish girl or boy was carried out. Such a contact with the Gentile was the equivalent of death, and that's the situation that Paul is speaking into here. And also, you can see it in the temple itself. in in uh, Jerusalem, there was the temple, and there was the outer court of the of the Gentiles, and there was a massive stone wall rising up, and there was a sign on the outer temple precincts, and they found, apparently, two of these signs, interestingly. They found one in 1871 and one in 1935, and it says, the sign said, any foreigner entering through this barrier will have only themselves to blame for their ensuing death. (laughs) Now, (laughs) That's quite bad, isn't it, really? It's quite bad. It's quite bad. I mean, imagine if we did that in church today. That wouldn't be great, would it? I'm not sure we'd get very far. We might lose our charitable status if we did that. Um, but, um, but that was really the backdrop to this, to this epistle. We need to understand that in, in order to understand what the Apostle Paul is saying here. And you remember that Paul himself... He'd fallen foul of this, because he was accused of bringing a Gentile into the temple precincts, um, and, and that was why he'd been lynched, um, you know, just um, just shortly before. So very interesting. But, but how about us? You know, this is, this is the Jews. How about our alienation? Um, I mean obviously, I, I was thinking, how would it apply to this church? I mean, actually, <clears throat> we're quite a diverse church, aren't we? Um, ethnically and, well, in every other way. Um, but, but where does contempt, what groups do we p- start to pour contempt on um, and treat almost a bit like the Jews treated the Gentiles? And I think sometimes it, there are certain things that we're quite good at, you know, perhaps ethnicity and so on, that we don't tend to um, create tribes around. But there are other things that we do. How about if I say to you the word, brexit um do you feel do you feel at one if you're a brexiteer with remainers and if you're a remainer do you feel at one with brexiteers or do you have an do you have a tendency to do a bit what the jews and the gentiles did do you kind of look down on them as a little bit subhuman although you wouldn't say it Um, we can do it in a thousand different ways in churches. How do we react to those who perhaps worship in a slightly different way? But sadly, this tribalism, it does seep into into church church life. Um, So we just need to be aware of that. We need to be aware of that. That's our first point, really. So humanity is disconnected internally. But secondly, if we look at verse 12, um, it says that at that time you were without Christ Um, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So as I said before, our our disconnection is horizontal, but at a more fundamental level, it's vertical. Um, And the thing is, in this context, although I'm talking about tribalism and different groups, there is something, there's another dimension to this. Because in a very real way, the Jewish people were the people that God had chosen. And so all of God's dealings with humanity came through the Jewish nation. That's just a reality. Um, it says in Romans chapter 3, when Paul is talking about you know, what benefits the Jews have over Gentiles... It says, what advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? He says, much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. So God gave the Jewish nation, one of the big prized possessions that the Jews had, is they were given the law by Moses. On those two tablets of stone, they were given God's standards, his moral law, for all eternity, and that was given in a sense, you could say, to the whole world, but it was specifically given to the Jewish nation. But not only did they have the law, but the Jews had also been given by God some very great and precious promises, which gave them a hope for the future, because God said, I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants could also be numbered. So God gave them a promise, the Jewish people, that they would have a future. Imagine being given that promise, that you're going to have a future, you're going to be fruitful, and your line, your family line, is going to continue. So they had the law, they had the promises. Even the promise, what's what's your favorite promise in the Bible? I bet I can guess for a lot of you what it might be. I'm being a bit presumptuous there. I guess it might be Jeremiah twenty-nine eleven. Do you know what Jeremiah twenty-nine eleven is? You've probably got it on your on your kitchen, um, I don't know, on your fridge or something, or in your toilet. I think John, I think the brands have it in their house, I seem to remember. Um, it says, I don't know why I remember that. But it says, but God says, he says, I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. They're thoughts of peace and not of evil. They're thoughts to give you a promise and a hope. So there is a sense in which that is a universal promise, I accept that. But in context, it was a promise which was made primarily in a specific context to the nation of Israel whilst they were in captivity in Babylon. When everything seemed bleak for the Jews in that nation, God God says to them, don't worry, things seem bleak now, but I'm going to give you a future and a promise and a hope. So the Jews had all these precious promises. They had God's law. They had God's promises. But if you were a Gentile, you had no such promises given to you. You had no law. John Stott, um, he, he wrote, this is how he described the state of the Gentiles. He says, they were Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, and godless. So that's not a good way to be, is it? Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, and godless. Um, so, because of the fact that they were alienated from the nation of Israel to whom God's dealings had uh, all been through, in a sense at that time it equaled alienation to the life of God itself. If we look in Ephesians chapter 4, verses uh, a bit later on in Ephesians, um, it says there that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened being alienated from the life of God. So alienation from Israel equaled alienation from the life of God. But is this alienation from the people of God, is it unique again to to the Gentiles? No, it is, again, as I was saying before, it's the natural human condition. If we're alienated from the people of God, um, naturally people in the streets, they are alienated from the life of God. And yet they have, because they're made in the image of God, they have this desire to connect with the divine. And I think sometimes you can see that. If you just walk around the streets around Norwich, you can see people going about their business, but there's this almost a dis- despair or a hopelessness, or sometimes even a hostility, which is etched into their faces. This is a futility of mind, people just going about their day-to-day work. You know, another day in the office, another day at home. And everything seems so mundane, so, mon- so meaningless. And where does all of this frantic activity that people engage themselves in, where does it all lead to? It leads to the grave. And um, the writer of Ecclesiastes, when he spoke about the human condition without God and he looked over um, all human activity, he said, vanity of vanities. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So people, in a way, it's a pitiful thing. We mustn't, I mean, there is a sense in which God judges them, but actually it's a pitiful thing, a sad thing. When we see people, we see all of the pagan religions of the world, we see every human humanistic philosophy, we see those who are involved in the New Age. It's a sad thing because they're trying to, to it's a legitimate need that it's what makes us human, it's not that we're just animals and not that we just live and we eat and we, we do these things, but it's that we have this sense of the transcendent. And so we should pity people who are involved in that. Uh, you know, involved in that. So that's a default state, this place of alienation <clears throat> that all human beings are in before they come to faith. But now I'm going to, hopefully now, we've looked at the issue, the problem, but I just want to talk about the solution. I want to talk about the solution and the hope that we have, the hope that we have of a different way of life, a life of oneness and connectedness. So if we look at verses 14 and 15, we, we, we really read there about how Jesus, he forges a new humanity, a humanity which is, for the first time, united with itself. It says there that Jesus is our peace. He has made both one and broken down the the middle wall of separation. So Jesus is the great peacemaker. He smashes down these walls of separation that divide different groups. And how does he do it? Specifically in this context, he he obliterates and he smashes down, in a sense, that big stone wall there that was outside the temple precincts, that was a, a figurative wall as well that existed between these two communities. But Jesus smashed that wall down and how did he accomplish it? Well we're given the answer in verse 15 it says that in his flesh that he, um, that he, he, uh, he abolished in his flesh the enmity the law of commandments contained in ordinances to create in himself one new man. So the way Jesus, what distinguished the Jewish people is that they were a distinct people group with their own laws and customs, very prescribed customs that God had given this people, the Jews, in the Old Testament. Um, And even today, if you see a religious Jew, if you go to Jewish communities, you can see that they're they're very um, distinct from all of the societies around them. So what happened um, even in Germany, and, and arguably not led to the problems, but, but the fact that the Jewish nation has always been distinct, partly because of its own customs and its, and its laws. But Jesus says here, that, or, or Paul says here, that Jesus abolished the law of commandments. Now, if you're a Bible scholar, you might be scratching your head at this point, um, because didn't Jesus say that he hadn't come to take away any of the law? Do you remember him saying that? He said it in the Gospels, didn't he? So we seem to have a problem, don't we? Possibly. Uh, Because surely this can't contradict Jesus' words. So Jesus says, doesn't he, in Matthew, he says, do not think that I've come to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy it, but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, heaven and earth will pass away, but not one jot or tittle will by any means pass Uh, From the law till all is fulfilled, but here he says that um, it's about abolishing. um, He's abolished in his flesh the law of ordinances. So how do we how do we reconcile these two things? You know, how do we reconcile these two issues in the Bible? But the answer really is that Jesus, we have to understand with the law, that there is the moral law, which is binding over all people and all times, and there is the ceremonial law, which is all the customs, the rituals, and the dietary habits, um, and clothing, so on. You know, you can't wear clothes made out of mixed wool or whatever, and that God mandated to the Jewish nation. But Jesus fulfills that, he fulfills the ceremonial law, Because he is the perfect sacrifice. He is the lamb who was prophesied in that that Jewish system. And so the need for that law, the need to live in that distinctive way that actually divided, drove the wedge between those two communities, it's actually broken in Jesus Christ because he perfectly fulfills, um, fulfills that sacrificial and ceremonial system. So... But really, I just want to think about um, just really this reality of of identity, this reality of identity, and again about how that that draws us together, that you know my fundamental identity is no longer that you know I am I am I am English or I am male or um, or any of these other things, but our identity, our overwhelming identity, it's not that we cease to lose. Our maleness, or our racial um, identity, or any other identity, but our our grand the, the the identity that swallows it all up is our identity in Jesus Christ. Um, and Paul says in Galatians, he says that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female. You are all one in Jesus Christ. You are all one in Jesus Christ. So we have to think about what that means. And I alluded earlier to some of the the divisions that can come in, you know, the Brexit and and Remainers and all these different people. But we need to remember this truth that we are all one in Jesus Christ, that the wall of hostility that divides us has been broken down. Praise God. So, um, and that should have a big impact it should have a big impact on how we relate to each other. It should mean that we're willing, and this is hard, but we're willing to move out of our tribes. Because it's a human thing, isn't it? Even in churches, even in a church like ours, we do have cliques. We can't, we can't really, um, we have to be very honest about that. I probably, unconsciously, and a lot of it is unconscious, isn't it? But we tend to gravitate towards people who are similar to us. So often i 'll be talking with you know i don 't know other g p s or something about NHS issues or something and and i don 't know and if if you're young mothers you'll be you 'll be together talking about i don 't know whatever young mothers talk about and and um, you know it 's not a deliberate thing, but we it 's an unconscious thing it 's a human thing and because you know you could the- theologize it and say it 's because we 're looking for this oneness but And there's nothing wrong with being with like-minded people. I'm not condemning that. But we do have to try to remember that actually this gives us the courage to move out of our tribes. This gives us the courage to move out of our cliques and to move towards pursuing oneness in Christ with the whole church, with the whole family of God in every place. So I think that's practically what it means, really. Now... um, Finally, I want to talk about how Jesus reconciles humanity with God. So going back again to that vertical dimension. So if we look at um, verse 13, it says, Now in Jesus Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near um, by the blood of Christ. So verse 13, it speaks about those who were far off, those who are a long way off being brought near. So the Bible often uses, and this can be quite confusing the bible often uses spatial language sort of geographical language about being near and far and so on and but really it's referring to the closeness of relationship rather than physical distance so it's not that you know i don't know somehow jesus is like you know less miles away from us now but actually we're brought into this close relationship with him we have to ask the question is, how, how are we brought into this relationship with God? And I think if we're honest, we have to say, there is such a mystery to the atonement. There is such a mystery to what the cross achieved that actually we probably can't fully um, explain it in, in one sense. There is probably a degree of, of mystery um, that we can't fully explain. But we do know two things. We know that specifically one of the ways that we're brought near to God is that we're brought near, it says here, by the blood of Christ. Second part of um, verse 13. Through his sacrificial death in our place, he removes the obstacle of sin which hinders our access to God. And you know, and we're very uncomfortable today with, with in churches about talking about the blood of Christ. It sounds very gory and very... Um, very kind of repulsive really, the blood of Christ. But the Bible is very clear that the shedding of blood is non-negotiable when it comes to the forgiveness of sin. And we do see this in the Old Testament system. And if you go back and you read, you know, Leviticus and so on, you feel, you find really that the whole thing is awash with blood, you know, not to be flippant, but it is, you know, you've that the priest is continuously sprinkling things with blood, with animals' blood. The altars and so on, they're being sprinkled with blood. And there's this constant um, series of sacrifices, almost so rivers of blood are perpetually flowing, um, You know, of these animals being continuously shed. And so it's right there in the fabric of the Old Testament that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Um. Just reading about there, there's just this anecdote. There was once um, a man walking into a church um, and he was um, uh, quite a sophisticated looking gentleman. And he came up to the pastor after the service and he said, Oh, I liked what you had to say, pastor, um, but I didn't really like all of the talk about blood and gore that you mentioned. I see Jesus as more of an example um, and, and I think that the important thing is to be true to the essence of Jesus' teaching. And the pastor responded, well, very well, but how do you hope to be saved? Um, and to the pastor's surprise, this pastor was very surprised, he said, I just hope that following Jesus' example will be good enough. And so then the pastor wisely said, he said, the Bible says that Jesus did know sin Nor was any guile found in his mouth. Can you say the same about yourself? And at that, the man started to look a little bit awkward and say, well, I can't say that exactly. Um, And then the pastor says, well, it seems then that you need a saviour and not just an example. And that the only way that your sins can be forgiven is by the shed blood of Christ. So Jesus, not just an example, though he is an example, and sometimes we can forget that, particularly as evangelicals, we can forget that he is an example. But we need a saviour. We need a saviour. Um, and the second way, the second way that, that we're brought into this union, uh, that we that um, that we're brought near to God, uh, as rather than far away, is by our union with Christ. And really, that's just these two word, Two words, really, at the beginning of verse thirteen. It says, "But now in Christ." And this refers to our spiritual union with Jesus Christ. That in a mysterious way, we actually become at one, intertwined spiritually with Jesus Christ. That now God sees us, in a sense, as linked with Christ, and that we do genuinely, it talks in 1 Peter, it says that we become partakers of the divine nature. So we are now positionally united to Christ, but we, in some mysterious way, we become partakers, we share in Jesus, um, and as we're united to Jesus, through him we then have access to the Father. We actually are joining, in a sense, in a way we can't comprehend, quite, quite amazing, mind-boggling really, that we are actually becoming, in one sense, we are beginning to share in the oneness of God himself. Obviously we don't become God, but we begin to experience spiritually the oneness um, you know, to draw close into that oneness um, of, of, of God um, himself, to enjoy the fellowship of his spirit. How often do we, do we overlook this great privilege that we have of being able to come into the presence of God at any time? You know, that was not possible for the Gentiles. But we can come into the presence of God at any moment of day or night. The, the way is open, there is no obstacle you know, I've just spoken before about those rivers of blood that needed to be shed, never, never ceasing, you know, in the temple sacrificial system. And yet we can just walk right into God's presence at any moment. You know, it talks about, doesn't it, in Hebrews about, you know, that they couldn't even kind of approach or touch the mountain for fear that, that they would just be struck down dead. And yet we can enjoy, we can step right into the very throne room of God at any moment. Even now, wherever we are, we can just come into the very presence of God through the Holy of Holies. Um, but, you know, do we avail ourselves of that? Do we, do we, take, do we make the most of that at any time? Um, it says in Hebrews, it says, Therefore, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith at any time. Amen. Amen, amen. And just finally, um, I just want to leave you with, with three pictures, three pictures, three word pictures that Paul finishes this section with, three word pictures. Now uh, verse, uh, you know, we've, we've understood that Jesus, you know, humanity is disconnected. It's disconnected from itself. Um, it's disconnected from its creator. Actually, I think we could almost say that we are actually disconnected internally, if you if you think more deeply about it, because we've got these, we've got that which in us which desires God and, and that which in us which is Godward and looking for eternity. And yet there's this sin nature that drags us down. So we're actually internally, we're alienated even from ourselves. But humanity is alienated within itself and we are alienated from God. But the point here is that Jesus is creating this gloriously new uh, unified um, humanity. But there's three pictures that he gives of that unified uh, reality, uh, new humanity. And the first one is of the kingdom in verse 19 it says, Now you're no longer strangers and citizens, uh, foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. You are fellow citizens with the saints. You know, if, you, if, you look at, if you're following the news at all and, and you look at um, uh, the refugee situation, you see these poor people who are displaced from their home, from their family, And they end up, often by a murderous regime, really, often by people who are trying to kill them, and they often end up just sort of wandering, literally wandering sometimes, groups of them across the desert. um, And they don't really belong in one place or the other. They're in no man's land. They've lost their identity. They have no settled identity on their passport, so to speak. And that's how the Gentiles were. They were outside God's kingdom, God's theocracy. But now it says that they've become fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the house of God. So they're no longer refugees. They've no longer got refugee status, um, but they're actually you know, members with the household of God. And the reality is, is that before the kingdom was localized in a specific place, but now God's kingdom um, overspills beyond geographical boundaries to incorporate, in a sense, the whole earth. And so our citizenship, Paul talks about our citizenship and he says our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think this is very interesting because what you'll find in life, even among us, is that some of us will have clearer senses of identity than others. Some people seem to have a very easy form of identity and I think if you've lived all your life in the same place, surrounded by your family. So for example, say someone who, who was born and brought up in Norfolk. If I was born and brought up in Norfolk, which I'm not, not from that far away actually, I was in Suffolk. Um, but say you're born and brought up in Norfolk um, and, and you live somewhere and, and you study in the area and perhaps you marry there, you settle with your family there. Um, you, you can almost say, well, I'm a Norfolk lad. I'm Norfolk born and bred. Do you know what I mean? And that's something that becomes quite fundamental to your identity. And I think for those people, that group of people, their identity can feel very stable and very rooted, you know, potentially. There's other things that could make your identity feel very stable and very rooted. But there are those sorts of people, they have a very stable, rooted sense of identity. Now, the world that we live in now is a world of increasing globalization. So, for many of us, we perhaps have lived, we perhaps born. Some people perhaps born in one country, and then they grow up in another country, and then they go to school in another country, and then they get married in another country. And so, it's not even that they're moving within areas of the same country, but they're actually moving from place to place. And, and there's nothing good or bad, nothing good or bad about either of those things. But I think what I'm saying is, for some people, identity can be confusing. For some people, identity can be a very complex issue about where they fit in. For some people, it's very clear and very straightforward. But for other people, that's actually fraught with difficulty. But one of the blessings of being in God's kingdom is that now we're citizens of a heavenly kingdom and that that heavenly kingdom gives us a sense of rootedness and of home that far exceeds, far exceeds and surpasses any other identity that we have. So our identities may be complex, earthly speaking, but as members of God's kingdom, the kingdom of light and love and peace, with King Jesus um, as the perfect king, we get a more solid and a more settled identity than we could ever hope for. Now the second picture um, is the picture of a family. So not only are we um, citizens of this new kingdom, but we're members of the household of God. And so... um, You know, a family, we get this image of a family, so the household of God. So a relationship which is much warmer and more intimate and more affectionate than just being citizens of the same kingdom. It's the intimacy of a family. So it's the idea of someone not just being a refugee and accepted into another country, but then they're accepted into the family of someone in that country. It's a further degree of being brought into relationship so, not just legal, legal status, but someone who's welcomed in and adopted as a son. So, that's the second image a kingdom, a family, and finally, a temple. Verses 20 to 22. The final image is the image of a temple. It says, In whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So, the final image is this image of the temple. And you remember, historically, in the Old Testament, that the temple was the place where God manifested His presence in a special way. It's always, I always find this a difficult thing to kind of um, understand, because some of the language in the Old Testament, if you read it at face value, it almost does seem that God is kind of coming to live in this temple or dwell in this t- tabernacle, or, or His presence is in this tabernacle. But of course, it is that God is everywhere but he manifests, the manifestation of his presence was in that temple in a very special way at times. and So at times, in the Old Testament, um, the presence of God would vanif- manifest visibly and the whole, place would, the whole temple would be filled with smoke and with a cloud and it, and it says in 2 Chronicles 5 verse 14, it says that the priests could not perform their, their service because the glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. But the thing is, now we don't have a physical temple in the same way. But, um, but God's transnational kingdom he exceeds all nations. And collectively, we are the temple of God. We are that temple of God. And the Apostle Peter describes it this way. He says, you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up sacrifices acceptable to God through jesus christ so we are that temple and that temple is built interesting it says it's built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets every building needs a foundation and the foundation of god's temple is the teaching of the apostles and the prophets and the cornerstone is jesus christ himself he is that foundation In the temples of old, in the Old Testament, one of the functions of the cornerstone, it was to hold together different walls. Again, Jesus holding together different people groups. And I like to think of it this way, that God is building this beautiful temple. And there's all these different walls. There's the Chinese wall and the Japanese wall and the African wall and the English wall and the male wall and the female wall and the middle-class wall, and the working-class wall. And Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, and he holds all of those walls together, the cornerstone uniting them all. And so there's this beautiful temple where the presence of God manifests. And actually, the glory of this temple, although Solomon's temple was very glorious, the the glory of this temple exceeds even the glory of the temple of old. So, so that's, a, that's a quick tour, really. So humanity's yearning for oneness with itself, with each other, this reflection of the image of God. We have this desire for oneness, but we've distorted it through tribalism, through othering people. Or we try and foster oneness with God through a variety of ways, mysticism, new age. But it's only in Jesus Christ that there's any hope of humanity being reconciled, being restored. It's only through a relationship with Jesus Christ that the image of God, marred and obscured in Eden, can be restored for its original purpose. Union with God, union with each other. And so if you want to become part of this, this oneness, we have to become united with Jesus Christ. And the only way to do that is through repentance and faith. And those barriers that divide us, those barriers that divide us and God will be forever broken. And then we're going to become part of humanity reunited. Amen.